thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday the 4th of March and this is The Naked Scientists. I'm Ben Valsler and I'm joined this week by Dave Ansell. Good evening. This week we're talking rubbish and recycling. We'll, we'll be exploring one way to generate power from waste and we'll find out how to keep the country fertilised. And as England faces warnings of severe drought and unusually low levels in reservoirs and groundwater, we'll explore the scientific solutions for better water management. And in the news, we'll hear why astronomers are looking for signs of life in light from the Earth. And we'll discuss the new study that suggests members of the aristocracy might be more likely to lie and cheat to get what they want. So if you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, comment at facebook.com slash the Naked Scientists, or drop us an email. Our email address is chris at the Naked Scientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. According to government figures, we produce around 280 million tonnes of waste in the UK each year. And while waste management may not seem glamorous, especially when you consider that this includes dealing with the over 90 million tonnes of animal slurry, it is essential. It's estimated that we could scavenge back as much as five terawatt hours of electricity from this waste per year if we use technologies such as anaerobic digesters. And we are joined today by Dan Cook from Virador, which is one of the UK's leading recycling, renewable energy and waste management companies. Dan, thank you very much for joining us. Just to kick off, what are our priorities with waste management? What's most important? Well, first and foremost, what we need to be doing is preventing waste in the first place, i.e. reducing it, thinking about what we need to buy, etc., designing out waste in the first place so that goods and items are reusable first and foremost and then recyclable. Once it's hit the waste stream uh, material, then it's the priority for companies such as Virador to recycle, recycle and recycle and then squeeze what energy we can out of what can't be recycled. So what sorts of waste are we talking about here? Can we take literally anything and make the best of it? Or are we still restricted to what we can actually recycle, what we can reuse? There is always um, a limit in terms of what can be recycled, whether it comes down to environmental benefit in doing so or economic uh, feasibility and benefit in doing so. So while we can recycle probably much more than we are at the moment, there is there will always be residues that can't be recycled for either economic or environmental benefit that we have to still safely dispose of. So that would be a situation where, for example, we have something that we could potentially claim back from our rubbish and turn back into nearly pristine material, but it might not be worth it either economically or energy purposes, in which case, what happens to it? Well, anything that can't be recycled currently either has to go for landfill, um, and landfill are engineered holes in the ground where we can still re- uh, recover some of the energy out of material that goes into the ground in that when it breaks down. Um, It produces methane gas, or the organic content in it produces methane gas, and we tap that gas off and burn it for electricity in the same way as we do using anaerobic digestures. So uh, material that can't be recycled goes to landfill for disposal mainly, although increasingly we're looking to thermally treat it and still recover energy out of it. We've mentioned anaerobic digesters. I mentioned in the intro that we apparently could be able to claim what seems to be an enormous amount of energy back from waste using these bits of kit. What are they and how do they work? 
Well, an anaerobic digester, as it suggests, um, digests uh, material, organic material, in the absence of of oxygen. So that is anaerobically. It is. Uh, it's a good technology for a relatively narrow um, amount of the total waste stream. I.e., it has to be organic material. It has to be pre-segregated or se- separated out that organic material and turned into a slurry. We then feed it into tanks. Uh, well, you add water to it, feed it into tanks as a slurry. And you have to have the right temperature for the bugs to start working. And the bugs start bubbling up um, in the absence of oxygen, as I say. They produce methane. We then tap that methane off and burn it through lean burn gas engines to produce power. It's already been used for quite a long time in the um, in the sewage industry, for example. And increasingly, we're using it within the, the standard waste industry for pre-separated food waste, kitchen waste, organic waste and garden waste. If we can keep that separate that waste stream separate then it's a good source of energy it sounds like a lot of preparation that you have to go into in order to actually be able to put the stuff in the digester in the first place how does it compare with terms of the amount of energy we get out with just tapping the energy from as you mentioned earlier landfill and tapping the gases that come out naturally well, it is more effective than that in the long run if you can keep the, the the proportion of waste. And we're talking probably about 15 to 20% of normal household waste and certainly um, more um, from catering waste and that type of establishment. So there are some commercial waste streams that are particularly suited to it. And it's always going to be more uh, efficient to ca- if you can se- segregate out those waste streams to separate it out and get gas and energy from it in that way rather than mixing it in and trying to extract it once you've put it into a landfill site. And with regards to the sort of scale and positioning, what do you think is the best approach? Should we have one enormous one in the middle of the country that burns off all of our waste? Or should we have lots of little ones, perhaps backyard-sized ones or, or ones in villages, small towns, maybe even one at your local supermarket that just gets rid of your kitchen waste? What hmm. scale should we be looking at? Well, it's very much horses for courses, and it depends on... um, There are a a hundred different things you have to look at when you're um, uh, locating any waste treatment facility. One, you have to look at the waste streams, where they're coming from, how they're collected, whether they are already separated or whether you're going to have to separate some of the other materials out. Um, And generally, there are economies of scale to be had by reasonably um, scaled facilities rather than lots and lots of little ones. Um, They'll cost more... They are fairly, you have to find balance them um, to keep them running properly, keep them running efficiently, and therefore they take a lot of care and attention in the operation of them, uh, the environmental monitoring of them to make sure you're doing it properly and not causing further environmental um, issues, for example, as you go along. So all of those things together mean that probably centrally and sensibly located facilities um, dealing with waste streams from a fairly uh, decent-sized regional area are, are better than hundreds of little community facilities. And what happens to the other products? Presumably the electricity that you generate can just go back into the nat- national grid and go to wherever it's needed, but the other products, all the, the, the excess water that you've needed to use and the actual what's left, which I believe is called the digestate, where does that all go? Um, again, depends on the setup of the of the kit that you're operating. Um, the energy, as you say, the electricity is fed into the national grid. Um, there is some heat in the form of hot water you can produce and use on site if you've got anything else on site that could utilise such things. The water has to go in a controlled uh, system and usually it's reused um, over and over again if it can be. Otherwise, it has to be safely discharged to sewer for treatment again, further treatment. And the digestate itself, again, will very much depend on the material that you fed into the plant. Um, What we're doing as a company, Virador, in different parts of the country, we're producing um, a compost-like material that can be used for landscape purpose, uh, landscaping, soil blending, that type of thing. In other areas, it can be it's actually dried out and then used as fuel or added into a fuel mix for thermal treatment where we'll squeeze even more energy out of it. So, again, it very much depends on the, the waste streams that we're talking about. 
So clearly there's quite a lot to be thought about, but these seem to be a very useful, very efficient bit of technology. That's Dan Cook from Viridor. And clearly anaerobic digestion is a good way to get energy back from our organic waste. But that doesn't tell the whole story. The digestate, the solid waste left behind, will contain lots of nutrients that can be returned to the ground as fertiliser. But if this only happens close to the digesters themselves, then we'll end up with a nutrient unbalance. Some areas will have too much and others will have too little. I spoke to Cynthia Carliel Marquet from the University of Birmingham to find out what the implications could be. There is a lot of emphasis on anaerobic digestion in terms of the energy that we can recover from organic waste and the government has identified 20, 30 million tonnes of food waste, there's 100 million tonnes worth of agricultural waste and there's about 2 million tonnes worth of sewage sludge waste, all of which can be anaerobically digested if we can construct enough anaerobic digesters. The issue that hasn't been considered as fully as energy is the fact that in those wastes there is another resource, well there are a number of resources, but there is specifically nitrogen and phosphorus which are more difficult to extract and recycle than energy. Surely if we are using a technique that allows us to keep hold of the nitrogen and the phosphorus and then put it back on the land, then surely this is a good thing rather than just locking it away in a landfill somewhere? It is a good thing. Returning the sludge, so the digestate from the anaerobic digester, back to the land is a good thing. The problem or the challenge comes in from the fact that the digestate, even when it's dried, has quite a high concentration of water, which makes it very bulky to deal with and to move around and to store. Generally, it would be quite difficult to transport it economically, more than about, say, 20 miles in a radius from your anaerobic digester. So if you've got enough land to accommodate that digestate, then yes, putting it back to the land um, with its nutrient potential is a really good use of it. The challenge comes in in getting it back to where you need it to be, so getting it back from, say, livestock areas back to arable crop production, for example. So we're going to end up with a very uneven distribution of nutrients. In particular, you've mentioned nitrogen and phosphorus. What is it about these two that we need to be cautious about? They both have completely different issues. Nitrogen is quite energy hungry. It's freely available. We make nitrogen fertilizer from nitrogen in the atmosphere, but it's a reductive process and it uses a lot of energy. Phosphorus is a completely different issue. It's a finite resource. All the phosphate that we introduce into our agricultural system comes from phosphate rock mines. It's a non-renewable resource. And there was some talk about two years ago that we were going to run out of phosphorus. That's been explored quite fully now, and it seems that we're not going to run out of phosphorus, at least in the short term. There isn't the urgency that surrounds some of the other minerals that we feel we're going to run out of um, much more quickly, maybe even within a decade, with phosphorus. They're now looking at, say, 370 years before we run out. But the phosphate rock mining industry is in itself quite a, a polluting industry. It's, it's not particularly sustainable to say, right, well, because there's quite a lot of reserves, we can just keep using this and then going and digging up some more and reusing that and reusing that. So it's a question of sustainability and trying to close resource loops and trying to be more economical about the way that we use resources. The way that we use it is just not sustainable. I think we lose about 80% between field and fork so about 80% of what we put on, you know, does not end up in our food. And so we mine an awful lot of this stuff. Uh, we put it on the fields. Uh, we do produce crops at the yields that we want, um, but it's just a very wasteful system. What would be the impact on a, a given area if it ends up with, with not enough phosphorus? Are we just going to see farms unable to grow food anymore, or is it a bit more substantial on the, the whole ecosystem? Phosphorus is really an issue for farming, for food production. And the yields that we manage to attain today that help to feed the world's population are to quite a large extent dependent on phosphorus fertilizer. If you don't have enough phosphorus and you don't have enough phosphorus in your soil, then the yields will decline 
till it gets to a point that it will not be possible to produce enough food. And is there a problem if we have too much of it? If too little will lead to reducing food crop, what will happen if we've got too much? If you've got the right amount of phosphorus on your field, then it'll be immobilised within the soil through precipitation reactions. But if you have too much phosphorus, then it can be washed off the fields into the water bodies where it performs pretty much the same job as it does in agriculture. It's generally phosphorus is a rate-limiting nutrient. When you don't have enough phosphorus, it keeps plant growth in check. This is the same within rivers and um, all fresh water bodies. Uh, So when you get more phosphorus in the river, then you get a big increase in plant growth or in algal growth. And this causes a problem to the whole river system, to the biodiversity of the river system. And it also causes a problem to people who use the water. Algal overgrowth, for example, is problematic in terms of extracting water, drinking water. Obviously, for farmers as well, it can be problematic if it changes the watercourse such that they can't use the water for irrigating their animals. It sounds like we're in something of a catch-22 situation, really, because we can't regain it from our waste products without things like anaerobic digesters, but that will then be inefficient and expensive to transport it around the country. What solutions do you think we should be looking at? The solutions have got to be done on a case-by-case basis. So if the local situation is suitable for putting that manure or that digestate back to the land, that sounds like a very good solution. If the local situation is such that the area already has a phosphorus surplus, in that case, there is a real need to get the phosphorus away from that area. And one of the things you can look at, lots of people have been looking at trying to extract the phosphorus from the digestate or from the animal manure and there's various chemical processes that you can use to extract the phosphate and then try to recrystallize it as some kind of mineral phosphate form that would be very similar to a mineral fertilizer. So forms of, uh, for example, struvite, which is magnesium ammonium phosphate or calcium phosphate, would mean that the phosphorus was in a much more manageable form, which we could then store and transport pretty similarly to mineral phosphate. Cynthia Carliel Marquet from the University of Birmingham. Nitrates are another nutrient, but in water they can harm newborn babies and much like phosphorus we've already heard about, trigger the rapid growth of algae in rivers, killing fish and choking plants. The amount of nitrates in the River Thames has trebled since the 1930s. So a team from the University of Durham, Cranfield and Bristol have been studying how these nitrates move through the land and end up in rivers, springs and other sources of water. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson met two of the team members on the bank of the Thames, Tim Burt and Nicholas Howden. A proportion of the nitrate in the Thames has come from sewage effluent discharges. That's largely been controlled in the last 20, 30 years. There have been lots of new treatment processes put in place. A lot of that comes from point source discharges, so we can see them, we know where they are, we know who's discharging them, and they've been largely cleaned up as much as they can be and regulated. The component that we've been mostly interested in is looking at the diffuse sources. So those are the sources that are widely distributed throughout the Thames catchment, and that's one of the largest catchments in the UK and it's some 10,000 square kilometres so it's a very big area and that predominantly is coming from our agricultural activity to grow food so ploughing, fertilising use of animals and the natural processes of biological fixation and also some atmospheric deposition as well so it's a combination of factors that have come from our use and our more and more intense use of the river catchment from which all of this water drains to then end up in the Thames. How does ploughing release more nitrates into the soil, Tim? Well, ploughing mineralises organic matter. It basically aerates the soil and you get organic matter being oxidised and that works through to, first of all, sort of ammonium salts and then through to, to nitrate. So it's really, you know, it's the aeration of the soil. It's what, in a sense, ploughing is actually about, turning organic matter into nutrients which can then grow crops. So does this mean then that during World War II, for example, when everybody was being encouraged to dig for victory, did you notice an accompanying sort of spike in a way then 
of nitrate levels. Yes, we did, in fact, in the First War as well, but the Second World War in particular, there wasn't much use of of fertiliser other than animal manures then, but the mere fact of ploughing and widespread ploughing, a huge increase in the area of land under the plough, and that does show through. It showed through to an extent straight away, but it also showed through in a big delayed response which came several decades after the war. But uh, yes, you can definitely see a link between food for victory and all those sorts of campaigns and the water quality in the Thames decades later. I know that, Nicholas, one of the important things here is about when you saw the link as well. It took time to get those nitrates from the surrounding land into the River Thames. Yes, that's right. So what we've tried to do is to estimate what the inputs were in any particular year and then we've used this long record of what was going on in the river to try and match the inputs to the outputs using a a series of stores. So uh, in this case, two stores, one which is runoff, so that's the water that hits the land and it makes its way to the river in that year. And then there's a second store, which is a groundwater pathway, and so the water that falls in any particular year takes nitrate with it, and then it ends up in the river sometime later. And in producing our model we allowed that delay time to vary up to a number of decades from zero to about 50 years or even more. What we found was by using the estimated pattern of inputs that we'd come up with by considering what fertilizers we used, how much ploughing there was, how many animals there were in any year, we were able to match that input to what we actually observed in the river and by doing that we can estimate what these different delay times are and how long it takes for something we do in say 1940 to reach the river. It turns out the answer is it reaches in about 1970 and the split is roughly 50-50 so 50% of what goes onto the land comes out in that year and 50% is delayed by approximately 30 years. That's incredible though isn't it? Yes it is and we think this is very important because a lot of what we do we we think that if it doesn't have an effect shortly after we've done it then it doesn't have an effect at all whereas in actual fact to deal with this problem we're going to have to think in terms of 50-year cycles and that's because we're dealing with a natural system that has this natural time constant and it's very important that we start to understand this when we're setting policy objectives when we're trying to understand how what we do now will affect the future. Nicholas Howden and Tim Burt on the long-term journey of nitrates into rivers. A longer version of that report from Sue Nelson can be heard on the Planet Earth podcast, which you can find at thenakedscientist.com slash planet earth. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, and with Dave Ansell. Still to come, we'll be returning to this week's show topic to look at how we manage water, especially important this year, as groundwater in the east of England may have hit its lowest in over 30 years. But first, astronomers have found compelling evidence for life in the universe. But sadly, only down here on Earth. That's slightly less exciting. It is slightly less exciting, but it's interesting science nonetheless. Using a phenomenon known as Earthshine, where light from Earth is reflected off the surface of the Moon, researchers from the European Southern Observatory were able to view the Earth as if it were an exoplanet, and to use the reflected light to look for telltale signatures of life. We can get a very good idea of the composition of something just from looking at the light that it emits or reflects. Certain molecules leave their fingerprints in the spectrum of light, and our understanding of the chemistry of those molecules then gives us a good idea what might be going on. However, observing light from planets around other stars is quite challenging. Any reflected or emitted light will be drowned out in the glare of the parent star. One solution comes from the fact that while emitted light, like light from a star, will arrive in any and all orientations, reflected light is polarised. It comes in just one orientation. So by looking at both the spectrum and the polarity in a process known as spectropolarimetry, astronomers can look for chemical signatures in just the light that's reflected off a planet. 
In this case, they were looking for biomarkers. This is evidence of certain combinations of gases in certain ratios that can only exist in the presence of life. For example, molecular oxygen and methane. Now, these chemicals can exist on a sterile planet, but they settle into a different equilibrium in the absence of living organisms. They were also looking for something called the red edge. That's a change in the reflectance of near-infrared radiation, and that indicates the presence of vegetation. So using just light from the Earth shine, the researchers were able to determine the fraction of Earth's surface that's covered in seas, and that it has a cloudy atmosphere. And crucially, they could also detect the existence of vegetation, and they could determine that it varied across the surface of the planet. So while the presence of life on Earth may not be news to us, it is proof that this technique works and it can be used in future to look for evidence of plant life elsewhere in the universe. I guess they did have a rather easier job in that both the Earth is quite close to us and also that they were looking, they know what the life should look like. So how would they know that vegetation is going to be the same on Alpha Centauri as it is here? That's a very good question. And obviously we only have one sample of a planet with life. And so we have to base our science on what we see down here, at least in the short term. And what we have done really is, although, yes, there may be more exotic, more interesting forms of life, we've proved that the techniques that we have at our disposal would be capable of spotting this type of life, the type of life that we're familiar with, if it exists elsewhere in the universe. So why are they looking at light from the moon rather than just going up there and looking at the Earth directly? Well, this gives us a model of what it would be like to look at light coming from an exoplanet, or or rather look at the light coming from an exoplanet and its parent star. So we need the light to be degraded, we need the light to be bounced around a few times. If we just look directly at the Earth, it would simply be cheating. Just far too easy. (laughs) Yes, just, just that bit too easy. Throughout history, a gentleman was something that the lower classes like myself would defer to and would aspire to become. But now research reveals that, paradoxically, those most likely to indulge in unethical, ungentlemanly actions are actually the upper classes themselves. Paul Piff led the team behind a study that proved this, and he joins us now. Paul Piff, what were you looking at? Why was this so interesting to a social scientist? What we have been basically very interested in for the last few years in our, in our laboratory work is how uh, different levels of status and wealth uh, shape individual patterns of behavior. So how, how does wealth and, and your status relative to other people in society influence and really inform how you see the world and operate toward other people? And we've run sort of dozens of studies that look at these very different kinds of behavioral patterns among upper and lower class individuals. In this most recent set of studies, we really wanted to very specifically examine whether wealth and status would shape people's tendencies to behave unethically, their willingness to break the rules or forego certain kinds of societal norms and standards in the service of their own self-interest. And so we conducted a number of studies to look at this. And some we conducted sort of naturalistic or field studies where we looked at whether drivers of more or less expensive vehicles were differently inclined to break certain kinds of laws while driving. And we also conducted a series of experiments in the lab to more directly test that question. So take me through some of the the other experiments you did. You've watched people to see whether or not they were likely to break the rules when driving an expensive car or a cheaper car. But other experiments relied on trusting people and and their own self-reporting. How did you do these and, and what were they telling you? understandably, the kind of car or the kind of vehicle a person owns isn't a perfect indicator of their socioeconomic status or their social class. So we wanted to conduct a series of different laboratory experiments to really more directly assess where a person ranks relative to others in society, how much wealth they actually have, and then associate that with their actual levels of unethical behavior. So for instance, in one study, we brought a group of nationwide adult participants from all over the United States and told them that they would today, very lucky for them, get to participate in a game of chance where the computer would virtually roll a die for them five times. And they would have to keep track of their scores. Higher scores in the game would be equal to better chances of winning a cash prize, a $50 cash prize. So we asked participants to report their total scores upon the conclusion of all five rolls. But what participants didn't know was that we 
had rigged the game so that all scores across the board were going to be totaling up to 12. So there was really no way a participant could actually get a score higher than 12. But by looking at the difference between what they reported and 12, we could see whether or not participants were actually cheating in this game to improve their chances of winning this cash prize. And amazingly, what we found was that there is a very significant correlation such that even when accounting for a whole slew of other variables, as a person's socioeconomic status increased, their tendencies to cheat in this game did as well. In fact, the people all the way at the top of the socioeconomic hierarchy were actually cheating by three times as much in this very simple game relative to their lower class counterparts. Well, that's a very striking result. I was wondering what you think we can really conclude from this. Is it just that people who are wealthier and are more successful got there by being more selfish? Or do you think it's the cause and effect is a bit mixed up? That's a very nice and elegant point. Your audience is probably wondering the same thing. Correlation obviously does not equal causation. So it might very well be the case that unethical people are going to be those more likely or the most likely to also improve their material wealth. So I imagine that there's going to be sort of a cyclical or self-perpetuating dynamic at play here. But at the same time, we've run a host of experimental studies where beyond just measuring a person's socioeconomic status, we actually manipulate it. And we do that in a few different ways. But across the board, what we find is even when people are made to experience a higher sense of social class, even if they are actually from lower class backgrounds, that experience of higher class actually causes them very directly to increase in their unethical tendencies and increase their self-interested behavior, suggesting that there really is a very specific effect associated with occupying or believing that you occupy a more privileged position in society with your tendencies to prioritize yourself and prioritize the pursuit of self-interest above the well-being and welfare of other people. What do you think this tells us about our interactions in the real world? Um, Politicians, for example, tend to be people from wealthier backgrounds. They tend to be very successful people in themselves. Does this mean that we should conclude, really, that we shouldn't trust politicians? I don't think that's necessarily the implication at all. I think that, again, it's important to point out that these are not sort of categorical differences that we're finding. And it's not necessarily the case that if you're, say, quote-unquote rich, you're necessarily going to behave in an um, unethical way. And also, if you occupy um, lower rungs in society, that's not to say that you're also going to then be more ethical. But what I think our findings suggest is that It's not necessarily the people who are occupying the most privileged positions in society, whether that's powerful politicians or wealthy executives who work in companies or financiers that work on Wall Street. They're not necessarily the most inclined to think about, first and foremost, the welfare of other people. And I think this is partly as a result of the particular culture that they inhabit in that professional and organizational setting. So if you work in a place that really hones self-interest and says that the pursuit of competition and self-interest is, above all else, a good thing, then it's likely that it could lead to some fairly socially pernicious consequences. But of course, some politicians are fairly public, people are directly observing of their behavior. So I think in situations where there are very direct and specific repercussions to one's actions, that may go a long way in sort of curbing what may otherwise be naturally unethical tendencies among those who are the most powerful in society. Thank you very much, Paul. Interesting study. Paul Piff from the University of California at Berkeley. Now, uh, something else with some ethical dimensions. Um, A speech-stopping ray has been developed. If you've ever been annoyed by someone chatting in a meeting or in a concert, or if you're a teacher with unruly students, help might be on its way. Katsuo Kuriha and colleagues have built a device which can stop someone talking from the other side of the room. It takes advantage of an effect you may have noticed when talking on a very bad phone line. If there's a delay of a few hundred milliseconds, maybe a quarter of a second, between you saying something and you hearing yourself back through the phone, it's almost impossible for you to talk because your brain is always listening to your speech and then feeding that back in to improve the speech and make sure you're saying what you think you're saying. There were a couple of videos that went viral maybe a couple of years ago of people where this seemed to be happening and they couldn't get a word out. They really did just talk absolute 
gibberish. And apparently that was because they were getting their own feedback with a reasonable delay, and that destroyed their ability to moderate what they were saying. Yeah, that's it totally. I've had it a couple of times when talking to someone down the line on the radio, and it's a complete nightmare. So what these guys have done is they've mounted a very directional microphone next to a very directional loudspeaker, both pointing the same direction. They've got a laser pointer on it for aiming. When they point their device at someone speaking, it listens to what they're saying, that adds delay, which is affected by how far away they are, so you get all the time travel things sorted out, and then plays it back to them with the appropriate delay. And they've got some beautiful videos on their website of someone talking away at the front of a lecture, then suddenly ceasing to be able to talk. They're not actually intending to manufacture them. I think they've done it for a bit of fun or as a sort of interesting intellectual exercise. But the technology is very simple. Somebody will build these things. And it brings up all sorts of interesting ethical issues, because, for example, you could point it at a lecturer for a laugh if you're a student um, or rather more sinisterly you could point it in a political meeting at someone who's giving a speech and cause them to completely stop being able to talk and they wouldn't know what's going on are there any positive uses to this sort of technology dave it sounds very interesting obviously the science behind it's interesting you've got some nice technology and a nice bit of neuroscience but so far it sounds mainly like it can be used for mischief and for sabotaging people's political careers what's the good spin um, they suggest that you, conceivably in meetings you get people getting way off topic and that the chairman of the meeting could possibly then shut them up and make everyone actually focus on what they're possibly trying to do and then possibly shorten meetings and make them a lot more efficient. Essentially anywhere where someone being in control might be useful, it could arguably be a good thing, but I'm quite suspicious. OK, interesting technology, possibly unethical applications. You say that you don't think they're actually going to build any, but now that somebody's proposed it, surely somebody will. Um, can you actually get speakers and microphones that, that are really directional enough to do this outside of a lab? There are various people who make very directional micro uh, microphones and very directional speakers. It's probably not a cheap thing to do, but for a few thousand pounds, I'm, it, I'm sure it'd be very, very practical. OK, well, that's very intriguing. We'll have to keep an eye on that. And if I suddenly start talking absolute nonsense, then you know that it's because Dave decided to build one of these at home and it's not because I'm just tripping over my tongue. At least that's going to be my excuse next time. By combining two existing but limited technologies, researchers in America have devised a novel way to generate electricity from wastewater. And all it took was a pinch of the right salt. The two technologies are microbial fuel cells, or MFCs, and reverse electrodialysis cells, or RED cells. MFCs use naturally occurring microbe species known as exoelectrogenic bacteria, which break down organic matter and release electrons to create a voltage. RED cells rely on a salinity gradient, so they use seawater and freshwater separated by a stack of selectively permeable membranes that will allow only either positive or negative ions through. These membranes are then connected to electrodes and together they contribute to an electric current. Each membrane only actually provides a small amount to the total current, so a working red cell requires many layers of membranes. To keep the supply of sea or fresh water, red systems presently need to be built by the coast. And when using natural water sources, river waters or coastal water, they suffer from fouling unless the water is extensively and expensively filtered first. So by combining the two different types of cell and feeding in waste fresh water, Professor Bruce Logan and colleagues at Penn State University were able to make a microbial reverse electrodialysis cell, or an MRC, so combining the two. And this not only generated significantly more energy than the fuel cell alone, but it also needed fewer membranes than a traditional red cell. That makes it cheaper. By using ammonium bicarbonate as their salt source instead of using seawater, they were able to increase the efficiency and then sever the tie to coastal regions. Ammonium bicarbonate solution is actually easily produced using waste heat, which you'll often find in the places where they're dealing with wastewater, and can be reclaimed and recycled within the system. Logan and colleagues argue that this technology could tip the energy balance of water purification because their system helped to purify wastewater 
whilst generating 0.94 kilowatt hours of electricity per kilogram. Traditional treatment of wastewater, though, where you use activated sludge, that actually consumes 1.2 kilowatt hours per kilogram of organic matter. Now, this would provide a very strong incentive to build these treatment plants in energy poor areas where you could provide both power and sanitised water in one go. So this probably isn't going to be the solution to our energy problems, but it might make purifying water a lot cheaper and easier in all over the world. Well, as they say about the energy balance, if you can actually purify water and provide even a small amount of energy, then yes, it clearly becomes a lot cheaper, a far more efficient process, and that's a strong incentive to, to build these plants. So yes, you're right, it's not going to replace all of the nuclear or coal-powered plants in the world, but it will give us cleaner water for less cost and a little bit of power into the deal. And now bringing us some more scientific highlights from the week, here's Miracentha Lingam with our Naked Scientist newsflash. A new drug target has been identified to fight the memory loss and dementia seen in Alzheimer's patients. Using mouse models, Li Hoi Tai from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology identified increased levels of the enzyme histone deacetylase 2, or HDAC2, in mice with the disease. The enzyme is known to play a role regulating the expression of genes involved with memory, but its increase can result in a blockade of these genes, resulting in impaired memory formation and a decline in cognitive function. I think the good news from our study is that this blockade imposed by the elevation of HDAC2 enzyme is potentially reversible. So we are very hopeful that by coming up with inhibitors of HDAC2, one day that is uh, possible clinically to recover cognitive function in Alzheimer's patients in terms of learning and memory. The genome of Ertzi, the 5,300-year-old Iceman, has been sequenced by scientists at the European Academy of Bolzana. Previous studies of Ertzi have shown that he was over a metre and a half in height, lived in the Southern Alps and was killed at the age of 46 by an arrow. But now his genome has revealed detailed characteristics of his physiology, such as brown eyes, lactose intolerance and his blood group being O, as well as a predisposition to certain diseases, providing insight not only into his health but also our evolution, as Albert Zink explains. So we found that he suffered from Lyme disease, and this is the oldest evidence for this disease that we have so far. He also has a genetic predisposition for coronary heart diseases. It was not known that these kind of diseases are that old. We know now better about his ancestry, that he belonged to a population that came to Europe in the Neolithics. And nowadays we have these kind of populations still present in Sardinia and Corsica, where we found the same genetic structure, but in the rest of Europe this signature is mainly replaced. Male pygmy hippos can change the composition of their sperm to reduce the number of males born into the next generation. Working with endangered pygmy hippos in a captive environment, Joseph Saragusti from the Leibniz Institute for Zoo and Wildlife Research found that male members of the group produced sperm with higher levels of X chromosomes rather than Y chromosomes, meaning more females of genotype XX rather than males of genotype XY will be born in their offspring. This results in less competition between the territorial males but could also be exploited to improve conservation methods. In many endangered species, it would be better if we could have a little bit more females than males because females are the ones that produce the offspring, then we have a better chance to save populations from extinction. The next stage will be to, to find the mechanism how they do it, and once we have this in hand, we might be able to influence this mechanism or activate it when we want it. And finally, a large extinct penguin, which lived 25 million years ago, has been reconstructed using fossil remains in New Zealand. The Kairuku penguin, named after a Maori word for diver who returns with food, was pieced together using two incomplete skeletons of the bird, revealing a penguin with a slender body plan, standing at four foot two inches in height and with an elongated beak and long flippers. The finding provides new insight into the ecosystem of New Zealand during this time period, as Dan Sepka from North Carolina State University explains. It turns out there's five different penguin species 
of all different sizes living side by side at about 27 million years ago. So this is part of a, a fauna of penguins. They're a very, very important component of that ecosystem. And based on their evolutionary relationships, we see that these penguins are actually a, a side experiment. They are a branch of the penguin tree that, that's separated from the main trunk. They evolved for several million years. They were very successful during that time, but ultimately they died out and did not leave any living descendants. But during the time, very, very important to the ecosystem. And that study was published this week in the journal Vertebrate Paleontology. Mira Senthalingam with our Naked Scientist Newsflash. And as usual, all of our stories, including the ones that you've heard earlier on in the programme, as well as their references, can be found on our website at thenakedscientists.com slash news. Reacting to the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with Ben Valsler and with Dave Ansell. Now we return to this week's topic of waste management to look at how we manage our water. It's looking like it'll be a very dry hit year this year in the UK with some reservoirs currently about 20% lower than normal. So good water management practices are essential. David Butler is from Exeter University where he's Professor of Water Engineering. Hello David, how much water do we actually use in a day? Um, we all use individually about 150 litres. So just imagine a, a litre bottle of water that you might have on, in your fridge. That's 150 of those we all use. How much of that is actually vital that we um, can't reduce, as it were? Well, that's a good question. Of that 150, um, the amount that we actually drink or cook with is far, far less. Perhaps just a, a, something like a tenth of that, 10 or 15 litres. So we've got this huge amount of water we're using, and I guess agriculture must be putting a lot more on top of that. Yes, so that's right. What are our options if if um, the climate's getting drier and we're going to have and we're getting higher population? What are our options to improve our use of water? Yeah, we're being squeezed on all sides, really, as you say, with with climate changing and with uh, growing population. So we need to try and attack the problem in, in a number of different ways from right from the small scale up to, up to the large scale. So I think it starts really, um, like we were saying, uh, individually in the household, we need to be perhaps uh, more efficient in the way that we use our water in our everyday life. Of course, we can recycle water in the household as well. We can take our grey water uh, from sinks and uh, showers and reuse that for flushing toilets, for example. So that would potentially um, reduce our, our water consumption by up so, to a third. So what would that actually involve? Does that involve changing the plumbing of a house? Yes, it would do uh, a little bit. You would need a, a system that um, drained your shower and your sink and collected it um, into a tank somewhere in the household uh, and then, then some form of treatment and a pump to get it back to, to your toilet. But you're still left with that two-thirds of our water usage. So what can you do with that? Uh, another angle to this is to think about how water is actually delivered to the household. Um, and although we use this 150 litres, um, the, the pipe system that brings the water to the household also does leak to a certain extent. And um, typically now, leakage levels are something like 20%. So 20% of the, all the water that's delivered is lost along the way. That's really scary. Is that just because the, it's a very, very old infrastructure in the UK? Yeah, that's right. Um, and the, the water companies have been working hard at reducing those levels. Um, not so long ago, they were up at 30, 30% plus. Um, so they've been pushed down now by careful management and by renewing some of the very old pipework that we have in the UK. So we're trying to save water that's coming into the house and when it's in the house. But um, yes. at some point, we're going to want to get rid of all of this wastewater. What do we do with it then? Well, with wastewater itself, that can be another resource of water because at the moment it's very common for our wastewater to be treated at a, a, a sewage treatment works and then uh, that will be discharged into a, a local river. Um, it's then not uncommon downstream for the next town to take that water out, treat it to drinking standards and to use it. So actually it's one integrated water cycle. So essentially you can um, keep recycling the water. Is there a limit to how often you can recycle water? 
Um, I don't think there's a limit as such. Look at the River Thames and think of all the towns up and down the River Thames and with London at, towards the, the mouth of the, of the river. Uh, the water itself has been uh, used and reused many times. I think the difficulty can arise if you do that in too tight a loop. That's a very loose, open loop. You're, you're taking water in and out of the environment. But once you tighten that loop very closely, then I think there could be some danger of pollutant buildup. Okay, so we've got various different approaches. Where is the biggest and sort of cheap? I guess the first thing, if you're a politician, you want to know what's the best bang for your buck. Where should we be first spending our money in these kind of in this way? Well, I think where we should probably try and spend our money is first of all to to make sure that we use less water. One way of doing that is for metering of properties. Um, and across the UK now, something like a 30% of, of households only are metered. And uh, studies have shown that uh, households with meters tend to use less water, maybe 10% or so less water. So merely the act of putting a meter in seems to reduce water consumption. So that's probably a good a place to start as possible. Otherwise, you're into very large-scale engineering works, such as constructing new uh, reservoirs. I guess in other countries that leads on to the other half of um, water management and that's floods. I mean, it doesn't seem very long ago since we were all kind of wading around in um, lots of water. Is there any way of storing that, reducing the flooding problem and storing more water for when we really need it? Yeah, it's a bit of a holy grail, that, isn't it? You're right, that uh, one minute it seems we have a drought, the next minute we seem to to have a flood. And I, I think that's something to do with um, climate change, that we're seeing this variability and we're seeing more more extremes are being predicted and we're seeing more extremes. What can we do about it? Well, probably storage is the answer and uh, rainwater harvesting is one possible way to do that. You can collect uh, rainwater from your household roof. Now, if you put a big enough tank in there, that means you can use some of that water for toilet flushing, for example, and, and therefore save water. And if the tank is big enough, the space there to collect rainwater to stop it running off and causing flooding. Brilliant. So there's something we can do at home. Thank you very much, David. That was Professor David Butler from Exeter University. This is The Naked Scientists. We are talking about waste, recycling and water today. We're joined by Dan Cook from Viridor and Professor David Butler from Exeter University. Your questions have been pouring in, if you'll pardon the water pun. Uh, Ryan Chown has asked a question that I think Dan Cook might like to tackle. Ryan has asked why we don't seem to use human waste as a source of energy. Now, I appreciate that we were talking about anaerobic digesters, digesters earlier that could take sewerage and uh, get power out of it. I think Ryan is thinking on a smaller scale. He suggested urine batteries. I'm not sure if they would work, but could we collect our own waste at home and use that as a source of power? I'm not sure about the collecting it at home or exactly how you'd <laughs> produce power from it in that way. Um, we do, in some parts of the UK, use human waste. Um, it can be, once it's been um, had tertiary treatment, it can be dried out, um, produce a cake, and that is actually used at uh, the lights of some cement kilns and some power stations. So that does actually happen. Um, I guess the main reason is a lot of it ha- still has good nutrient in it, and most places, once it's treated, it's still used as um, good old food. Fertilizer. Thank you very much. Uh, David, I wonder if you might like to tackle this question from Steve Gale. He's written to us on Facebook. Um, and he's asked if it's safe to use grey water, so this is water from the sink or from the shower, etc., to water things like fruit trees or crops in your garden. Now, we talked about using it to flush the toilet, but using it to feed the plants that you might one day eat is a bit of a different issue. Yes, I think I would be perfectly happy to water my flower bed with with grey water. Uh, But I think I would be just a little bit cautious about watering fruit or vegetable that you were going to eat, um, just as a precautionary measure. So what sorts of problems could you actually build up in there? I mean, is it going to fill up with, with pathogenic bacteria or is it purely just a case that we know it's been used, we know it's got the chemicals in it from, say, your shampoo, and they may impact on the soil well, I think quality. It's both of those, yes. I mean, there's the shampoo chemicals that might be taken up by the plant. And certainly, even though this grey water comes from maybe the sink, it can also come from the shower and the bath. That can also have pathogenic uh, bacteria uh, in it. 
So probably best at the moment just to stick to flushing your loo with it. But I uh, would, yes. he also mentions another one, which is the the runoff, the drip collected from an air conditioning unit. Now, air conditioning, essentially the water that comes out is distilled water. Is that likely to be a problem? Presumably it's going to be pure and clean, really healthy water. But is it an issue to be putting distilled water on our plants? No, I don't think that's, that's an, an issue. I would just be slightly cautious with, with air conditioning uh, units of any type um, because of the issue of Legionella, uh, which can cause Legionnaire's disease in, in very extreme circumstances. Now, I'm not suggesting it would cause a problem in this case, but I, I, I would be cautious with that water. We've had another question here, and this one's from Andrew Reitmeyer. Um, he says that waste is often burnt to produce energy, and he wonders if we can use the ash from that and reclaim useful trace elements. Dan, at Viridor, you, you will quite often thermally treat waste in order to get the power back out of it. Is this something we can do, reuse the ash? Oh, yes. Um, there are two types of ash that come from thermal treatment. One is known as incinerator bottom ash, and that's the, the, the majority of it, which is the clinker that drops out of the bottom of the furnace, if you like. Um, that can be safely recycled and used as good quality aggregate, and that happens already. They take the metals out, any metals that are left in it, and again, those ferrous metals are recycled. And the bottom ash itself is used as aggregate for road building, for block making, etc. The interesting bit, and where the sciencey bit comes in, I guess, is the other type of ash is known as air pollution control residue which is um, where you've injected lime and carbon and things to remove any pollutants and increasingly we're looking to reuse that particular type of ash um, in the manufacture of gypsum or the replacement of gypsum for gypsum board and such like so science is being applied to look at new ways of recycling that because everything about um, both thermal treatment and energy recovery as well as the west, rest of the waste and recycling industry these days is all about the most getting the most resource efficiency that we can out of all the materials we have we use as a society fantastic thank you ever so much and now cleaning up in our question of the week here's hannah critchlow the naked scientists question of the week brought to you in association with the how to wisman foundation support Supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. This week, Jim in Virginia takes us on a journey to explore whether plastics persist in our oceans. Hello, this is Jim from Smithfield, Virginia. I understand that acrylic, polystyrene, and polyester plastics make up most of the growing body of waste plastic in the ocean, and that this stuff never breaks down but just gets fragmented and eventually ingested by living organisms. But we know that nothing persists forever. So these plastics have to break down at some point. Does anyone know how long it takes to reach this stage? We back the answer from Mark in Minnesota. My name is Mark Hillmeyer, and I'm a professor of chemistry and the director of the Center for Sustainable Polymers at the University of Minnesota. Plastics represent an amazing class of materials called polymers. These long-chain molecules have remarkable properties and, as we know, find use in nearly all aspects of our lives. Their broad applicability is due in part to their durability and resistance to degradation. However, this resistance to degradation is one of the pitfalls of plastics when they end up as trash in our environment. Unfortunately, a large quantity of our plastic trash ends up in the ocean and negatively impacts ocean life and the health of our ecosystems. Scientists and engineers across the globe are now grappling with this daunting environmental issue. So while you might think they would quickly corrode, dissolve, or otherwise be broken down soaking in our oceans, this is not the case. Most plastics are made from simple oil-derived compounds and thus are very hydrophobic or water-hating. In fact, plastics that have lived their useful life decades ago have been found floating in the Pacific Ocean, providing compelling evidence for their robust nature. Eventually, plastics that do end up in our oceans will break down through mechanical abrasion, oxidative degradation, and other chemical and sometimes biochemical processes. But this can take literally 100 years or more, depending on the specifics of their chemical composition. Making the situation worse, plastics are generally resistant to sunlight. Next-generation polymers are being designed to be durable in use, but readily broken down after disposal. Getting away from petroleum starting materials and generating new plastics that do not present such environmental hazards are important sustainability challenges in the world of polymers. And what happens to all of this plastic floating around in our oceans? Richard Thompson, Professor of Marine Biology at Plymouth University, explains his experiments. I work with common mussel, Mytilus edulis, which is the same species as you'd have with mussels and chips, if you like, more fruit. We've shown that if you give them a pulse exposure to small pieces of plastic in the laboratory, you move them to clean conditions where there's no plastic, even 40 days later, some of those individuals have still got plastic in their gut. 
So there's clear evidence that a range of creatures, a range of small invertebrates are eating plastic and indeed are retaining that material. Tasty. Moving onwards and upwards. Hello, Naked Scientists. I'm Daniel Spain in Tennessee in the United States. And I was wondering, if there were a large object, maybe like a meteorite falling straight down overhead, right out of the sky, and it was hit directly towards me, what kind of warning would I notice? Would there be an accompanying sound? Or would I not know it until it's too late? Looking forward to the answer. Love the show. Keep up the great work. Would Daniel receive any warning before being squished? Send your thoughts to Chris at thenakedscientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page, or join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Thank you, Hannah. That's Hannah Critchlow with our question of the week. And that's all we have time for this week. Next time, we're looking at sensor technology, finding out how a specially designed network of sensors can monitor an entire airport and how to design tools to peek inside a working jet engine and keep it in tip-top condition. You can email your questions to chris at thenakedscientists.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, or post them to our Facebook page. Thanks to Dan Cook, Paul Piff and David Butler for joining us, and to our production team of Miracentha Lingam, Hannah Critchlow and Tom Simpkins. The Naked Scientists podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.